This episode of Climactic was recorded on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We wish to pay our respects to leaders past, present, and emerging, and we look to the traditional owners of this land, who lived in harmony with it for tens of thousands of years, as vital partners in returning to a sustainable way of life. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Unless kids are really passionate about the environment and nature, they're not going to be motivated to go on and fix those real-world problems. So that's what we're all about. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Climactic the podcast collective for our climactic times. I'm Mark Spencer, and I'll be your host for today's episode. If you love animals, you'll have a lot in common with this week's guest, Josh Cox, the founder of Reptile Encounters. Mobile zoos, bringing animals into classrooms, these aren't new ideas, but what Josh is doing with Reptile Encounters is new and very much needed. He's not only helping train a new generation of zookeepers, conservationists, and animal lovers in the proper ways of care, but bringing awareness of habitat loss and climate change to students, as well as cool animals to the classroom. It was a great pleasure to get to tour their facility before sitting down with Josh for this chat. And in the background, you'll hear one of the red-tailed black cockatoos occasionally chirping from the aviary. In this chat with Josh, we talk about the importance of a connection with nature, or even just exposure to the natural world. We talk extinctions, and the pace of the sixth mass extinction event we're living through right now, and causing as we change the world. It's hopeful, there is laughs, but it's also quite serious. So parents, if you're listening with your kids, just check in with them about how they're feeling after listening. All right, here we go with Josh Cox. So Josh, where are we right now? Where are we? Reptile Encounters headquarters in Burwood. So we've been here for well, about 13 months now and getting the place set up with all our animals. So as I came around the corner, you know, walking down to the place, I see this bright lime green building and I'm like, oh, that's definitely Reptile Encounters. And that's got to be a custom paint job because that's just perfect. <laughs> but I understand you, this is how you found the joint. It was, yeah, coincidental. So it was previously used for personal training and I think they had an SAS theme. So whole building was lime green and the inside was full of uh, artificial grass so it kind of had a bit of a natural vibe and yeah, it's a, an older structure so it kind of feels a bit rustic and you uh, said to to really expand on that natural theme within filling it with weird wonderful and delightful cute invertebrates and furries and all sorts of stuff so like this really you've created like this this jungle in this well it wasn't exactly nondescript looking commercial yeah. building before but you really don't know what's in store for you as you as you walk up to this place. So, high level, how many animals are in this building at sort of any one time? You've just given me the tour, and I kind of lost count after a few dozen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a guess it's between maybe 250 to 300 animals 
just depends if you count all the smaller ones or the invertebrates. But where did this start? What was your first kind of? I, I assume you were a normal kid with a cat and a dog, or am I completely wrong? It was probably the other way around. I started with the more peculiar. I think my first pet was either a budgerigar or a, a bunny rabbit. And I remember I had this budgerigar, Trixie, for probably seven or eight years, and she was tame. And at one point, even flew away, disappeared, and playing cricket in the afternoon. And she flew down and landed on my shoulder as I was jumping the fence. So that was probably where it all started. It wasn't long before I was breeding rabbits and breeding guinea pigs and breeding budgies. And, and then I got into the reptiles. I had a, a pet turtle that I shared with a friend from primary school uh, named Tetley. So uh, we had this sort of timeshare arrangement with our turtle. <laughs> we'd live at my house for a term, then we'd go to his house for a term. And that was sort of my first introduction to reptiles. And then I had some little newts uh, that were quite cool and fish and all the rest of it. So. Yeah, there's always been, I guess, a background love of animals and nature and, you know, always love to be out in the garden looking for skinks and, and that type of thing. So back to the first one, the budgerigar. Yep. And, and for the sake of you know, all the other listeners who don't have an Australian accent like I do, who of course know what a budgerigar is. A budgerigar, uh, a small little parrot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's an Australian native parrot. And so they're Australian native, yeah, budgerigars and they're also... Uh, budgerigars that are introduced. Are they colourful like your lorikeets, rosellas? Is this kind of one of those iconic Australian parrots? Yeah, so the Australian variety are basically just a green colour. Mm-hmm. And then you can get other colours. I think Trixie was a, a blue and white budgerigar. With the cricket, with it flying down, landing on your shoulder, was this when she entered your life or this is after you thought you'd lost her? And that she was, was after I thought I'd lost you. her, yeah. And she obviously was tame and saw me on top of the fence and flew down, landed on my shoulder, and I was like, yes. Just waiting for you to get high enough that she could see you soaring through the sky. Exactly. (laughs) The interest started young. How did this develop into uh, the business that it is now? So how did you decide to go, well, I I love these animals. I like the the unconventional animals that that you can go out and find that you like. Like, how how did you even Uh, think that, like, like, the story of, like, how did you get these newts? Like, once you were in these circles, did these things kind of happen like someone says hey i've got these newts well that was actually so a friend i played football with uh, his dad kept them and knew i loved animals so that's how that came about as far as the business i actually after school went to la trobe uni and studied medical science i was also very passionate about sports so i was thinking of going down the physiotherapy line Uh, but after being at uni for a few years i decided that that wasn't going to happen so I actually went into the pharmaceutical industry okay, and was a pharmaceutical sales rep uh, for a number of years. And yeah, I was living with some friends in, in an apartment in Turak and uh, a friend of mine started an online health business. So I thought, well, I've got some reptiles down in the shed. Why not start Reptile Encounters? So yeah, that was about 2007 in my early 20s. And yeah, I guess, you know, I saw a need because kids these days aren't getting exposed to the garden skinks and the, the mm. wildlife that we did growing up because you know population growth and fewer people have backyards and technologies come on in a big way so people are spending more time in front of screens so mm. there's a real need for young students and kids to, to connect with nature and the environment because there's evidence that there's health benefits to being in nature and bringing green spaces and, and all those sorts of things and we also know that you know animals have you know, a calming and a, and a good effect on people. So we know they're good for our health. So combining all of that and I guess this need for, you know, sustainability and environmental education, you know, it all ties together. 
walking in here, I, I thought I knew what to expect. I think I was kind of close to what I was expecting, which was kind of very comfortable accommodation for these these animals. But this is not where the, the presentation happens. Yeah, that's out on the road. But it is very much like you are recreating the habitat quite well, but it's not it's not a zoo. It's like it's like a like a, one of those lizard houses it'll, yeah. at a zoo, but you can also see the exposed back of house. Yep. Well, so for us, you know, we've got currently probably 15 volunteers. We're going to grow that to 25. We're interviewing at the moment. It gives these guys who want to work with our animals experience in what it would be like to work at a Melbourne Zoo or a Hillsville Sanctuary. And you have a front of house and you have back of house and, you know, processes to make sure the animals are taken care of and uh, all those sorts of things. So that's what we're trying to replicate. We're NDIS approved now, so uh, we're going to be looking for probably school leavers that are high functioning, that love animals, and maybe looking to do a TAFE course in animal studies or captive animals. So our facility here will enable them to get some experience uh, with that and you know, follow the processes that they would need to follow if they were working in, in a bigger institution. Yeah, you'd be a huge compliment to that process because it's not like a, a TAFE would be equipped to have live animals of these varieties of these species exactly and so yeah you yeah. could you could work to the standards that they need but you're also then getting the the volunteer sort of workforce through that's that's a really good win-win so there's been interest from ndis well definitely so yeah we've been approved fantastic so now we're just looking for uh support coordinators to get the clients through the door and mm. uh, get that process happening oh, that's very exciting some people might be familiar with this concept before of the the school program you know the people that come to the classroom with the animals, but they might not have much of an idea of what it's like at the, the back of house, back at the warehouse. Yep. So I, I was really impressed at what I saw today, massively. And obviously, you know, there's been these kind of programs around before in, in earlier decades, like the idea of, you know, like, and I say, I am going today to interview Josh, who started Reptile Encounters, and people will be like, oh, Reptile Encounters, I think I've heard of that before. It's a concept people are familiar with. But you, Josh, being being a young man, this being a new business, how is this kind of quite different than what the traditional mobile zoo operators have been like before? Because I, straight away, like the facility here, you are getting set up to have people in. This is a lot more biodynamic and enclosures for the animals. This is not, you know, they're being stored until they're being used. This is like they're they're having a good life. This is a very much like a private zoo recreation here in the in the facility. So how's it different than what people would expect or what came before this kind of business, what you're doing here? Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing. I guess you don't get into this line of work or this business unless you love the animals. And if you love the animals, well, you want to provide them with the best possible environment, enclosure, whatever you want to describe it as, and provide them with the enrichment that they need. I'm obviously deeply passionate about the environment, about animals. And I guess I like to think big picture. And probably once upon a time, it was more just about bringing the animals in, put a smile on the kids' faces. And there's obviously a lot of positives there, but I want to take it a step further because we need people that are passionate about animals like Steve Irwin that you mentioned before, because if people aren't passionate about the animals, they're not going to want to fix the issues of the earth at the moment. And mm -hmm. it's quite topical with an election coming soon. You know, climate change, plastic in the ocean, all these issues are really important. And unless kids are 
really passionate about in the environment and nature, they're not going to be motivated to go on and fix those real world problems. So that's what we're all about, sort of making it more than just a, a one-off incursion or program. It's sort of a, yeah, more of a holistic approach. Mm. And so what we're working on is additional resources and partners that we can bring into our program uh, to do that. We want to actually get students out into the field and cleaning up the beach or you know, surveying the trees for red-tailed black cockatoos or planting trees for koalas out in the Yuyangs. These are all sorts of inclusions uh, that we want to add to our program so that students can actually join the dots and go, all right, this is a gorgeous animal I've met in my classroom. Now I can see why it's important to preserve its environment. Yeah, it's tied all together. So. That's fantastic. And that's really what we're trying to do here on the show is talk to people about how whatever else they happen to be doing is intersecting with the times we live in of the Anthropocene, of climate change, of the need to really start acting positively on sustainability because even just hitting neutral right now is not enough. We're already seeing sort yeah. of locked in runaway effects of things getting worse and worse and worse. So with your decision to open the business, at what stage kind of did the, the sustainability aspect outside of the love of the animals? You can't split it out, right? You can't say, I love these individual animals and then not really give a stuff about the wider species. Like if you love the animal, you want that to continue. You want that species to be viable and sustainable with enough habitat. So yep. I guess, is it kind of inextricably linked for you, those two between the love of these animals and then the desire for them to have viable habitat and, and sort of sustainability in general. Have these been kind of linked from I, the start? I guess it's a continuum. Yeah, yeah, you start out and you're obviously just starting to get the wheels in motion and try and get some traction in the market and try and get an audience. And then as you do, everything else just evolves and as the team grows and, you know, the ideas grow, yeah, we've sort of, yeah, thinking really big picture now. What's the, the full solution for a student going to school, we want them to come out of school at the end of year 12 and be really clear about what's happening, you know, in their city, in their country, with the world. Yeah, we need to create a generation of really switched on people. Yeah, so that we can make those changes because, yeah, it is pretty, pretty scary mm. uh, what will happen if we don't. Through your love of animals, like everything else kind of comes naturally with that. You can't think, oh, well, who needs forests, but I really love possums and birds and you know you you can't think that way so i always kind of like to explore that a little bit to be like so how how conscious were you of climate change because of the other thing you were involved with your passion was just so one-to-one matched with the broader issues of climate change and sustainability what's it been Uh, like trying to share your love of these animals with with the students it's actually pretty easy because i just have to be myself and you know i often get the feedback that you know you're so empathetic and you know your love of the animals is so evident and that's just because that's just me it's just natural I don't have to fake it you know it's just the way it is obviously I'm not going to win over every student every kid you know and you're often fighting an uphill battle because they've got parents that grew up on a farm and learned that a good snake's a dead snake and those sorts of things so animals are a product and yeah, or kind of you know, de-empathizing with with animals. Yep. Well, there's you know possums in our ceiling, so they keep us awake at night. So therefore, they're vermin, or mm-hmm. they're horrible. You know, I had a horrible incident at tennis only last Tuesday night. A guy decided to you know whack a tennis ball at the fence because there was a possum on the fence. I'm like, what sort of person does that? Obviously, people that just completely lack empathy mm-hmm. uh, for animals. So 
yeah, for me, that's an easy job to go and display that empathy to kids and to make animals that, you know, have been demonised, to make them cool, you know. And generally, I think we're pretty successful. We come away from a, a program or a show and kids now think snakes are f***ing cool. <laughs> bleep that out. It's um, all right. I, I, I can bleep stuff. I, I like the passion, though. It's, it's true. Yeah, so we want to make these animals really cool uh, because, yeah, that means they're more likely to be empathetic and to do things that are positive for the actually animal factor those animals into their thinking rather than you know us and them or, or not even thinking about animals at all yeah 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 so i mean often i i understand i've had possums in the ceiling it's frustrating but you know you've just got to think well we've cut down the trees and now they've got nowhere to go so mm. you know having some empathy there for the animal uh, i think is really important so yeah, I think bringing animals into the classroom, it is really positive for the students because, you know, most of the time they haven't seen any of the animals that we bring in. So mm-hmm. to have that experience and up close uh, is pretty powerful. Uh, obviously, we've got zoos and we've got great zoos here in Victoria. Uh, you can't get as close to the animals and have that same experience. So uh, I think both our programs work in symbiosis. Uh, they're both both fantastic and both can have positive impacts on people but yeah we've got the benefit of being there and being the ambassador for the animal in the classroom and really getting our point across that you know these animals are important they're all part of the ecosystem we can't afford to lose any of them because it all disrupts mm. uh, the whole entire system and that affects us as human beings as you're saying before we need water we need air we need all these things in our environment otherwise yeah we're going down the googler being exposed to these animals and then like if that does awaken a an empathy in you or like a wonder and yeah as you said a lot of the students is the first time they are getting up and close and personal with these animals even hearing about them first time much less seeing them from a distance like a melbourne zoo much less getting to be really up close and touching them like in my experience walking around the warehouse with you before sitting down to do this i heard about species i'd never heard about got to touch them and got humped by a wallaby, so that was great. <laughs> and it wasn't yeah. a wallaby. What's, what's the patty melon? Patty melons. I'd never heard of them, and now I want one, and now <laughs> one wants me. So it's the whole thing. I noticed I was at Healesville Animal Sanctuary, a really great zoo here in Victoria, last year, and it was during the bird show. So like the wedge-tailed hawk or eagle, eagle. Yep. wedge-tailed eagle. You know, like two meter, two and a half meter wingspans. Amazing bird. You know, swooping really low over my head. And that experience of seeing those animals was, was it going to be such a memorable moment and impactful for, moment for me already. But then the zoo did the really cool thing of saying, look, if you are impacted by these animals, if you care, and of course you are, here's what you can do to help protect their environment. The, the toilet paper speech. They said, yep. you know, don't buy these brands. Here's what to look for. You know, just so you know, these animals are losing their homes, their habitat, their only means of survival for the sake of the dunny roll in your bog because it's non recycled and it's non sustainably sourced, and Victoria's old growth is getting thrown into toilet paper. Yeah. And until that moment, I was, you know, I was buying the right toilet paper, luckily. I was, was already that far. Conscious. Yeah, because of friends, because of exposure, yeah. and luckily because of a bit of social shaming, I was just like, okay, well, that's the right thing. I'm going to spend the extra dollar. Fine. But that made me then really sympathetic to people out doing tree sets and doing blockades of old growth forest in Victoria that's being logged. People who do tree sets and tree stands. And 
the exposure to the animals and that kind of that sense of wonder, is that a really natural on-ramp that people can use to, be, yeah, basically, to, like you said, become much more message. aware? Well, definitely. I think in Australia, we're blinded by it because we're the lucky country. Everyone's got rose-coloured glasses and, you know, this deforestation, that's not happening here. Yeah, it does give us a, a really easy, nice segue into, well, you know, Australia actually has one of the highest rates of deforestation of the developed world, particularly up the east coast of Australia. The koala of all animals is, you know, at risk of extinction. You know, so if we can't save the koala, well, what hope does the rest of uh, our species have? Definitely an easy, easy segue into that. And people, because you've built that rapport and that relationship, they'll actually hear the message, mm. you know, because they've sat and looked at these animals and been in wonder. And now, you know, they're learning that, well, no, they're actually dying out in the wild. There's not many left. In Australia, we've got the highest rate of mammalian extinction in the world. And I think one third of all species are at risk of extinction. You know, so there's some really scary stats uh, going on. So obviously people need, need the knowledge. Knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. uh, we obviously have to put it across in a way that's not too frightening for, for young people. Uh, we want them to act. And we know that, you know, if they love the animals, they're more likely to act in a positive way and make the right choice, buy the recycled toilet paper or we use who gives a crap here. Um, you know, so doing those things are more likely to come easy to someone that's empathetic and has a, has a love of our animals. So you've got a really good tagline for the company. I think, I think what we just talked about speaks to it, but just in case there's more to it. In inspiration, education, conservation. Mm. So what are those three concepts mean to you and in, in what you're doing here and, and what it means to the students, the guests that you get in front of? Yeah, well, I think, you know, with our programs, that sort of having that one-off moment with an animal, whether it's the, the whirly or brush-tailed betong or whether it's a red-tailed black cockatoo, that's a wow moment. You know, that's a, a light bulb moment. And so that to me is, is inspiration. So, you know, when they meet Samantha, the red-tailed black cockatoo, and they realise that she needs a really old gum tree because they have large hollows and these cockatoos lay their eggs in, in large nest hollows, that kind of is that moment of, oh, I, I didn't realise, you know, uh, maybe I should be more conscious about my choices when it comes to paper and, and that type of thing. So that's the inspiration, uh, education. Obviously, we're educating about the animal, and that can be the, the biology of the animal. It might be why they're threatened. So obviously, with red-tailed black cockatoos, we talk about the loss of habitat. We talk about the, the loss of their, their food. Obviously, if they're losing their home, they're losing their food source as well. Potential threats of, of poaching and, and other things as well. So that's all education. And then the conservation side is, I guess, we, we want kids to, to go away and act. So we don't want it just to be a cool experience. We want them to have to actually take the next step and go, all right, how can I make the, the world a better place? How can I make Australia a better place? So, I mean, ultimately we want to create better humans. And isn't it amazing that you can create better humans by re-exposing them to nature? Because we have really lost that. And this is the closest I've come to animals outside of my house cat in months. And isn't that just, it's kind of re shocking to actually step back and realize, like, I have not come close to any connection with the natural fauna of the world in the course of my daily existence. It, you kind of build up that emotional distance, even if you don't want to, even if you do care about animals, it becomes an abstract care. Absolutely. And, yeah, it's, it's just a, a consequence of 
the way society has evolved and changed and, you know, to actually connect with nature, it's a conscious effort. Mm. We have to go, all right, I'm going to go for a drive and we're going to head out to Warrandyte and go for a walk along the, along the river. Um, it's not simply a matter of stepping out into your backyard because mm. for most of us, we're not fortunate enough to have our wildlife in our own backyards anymore. So going back, I guess, to earlier, what was the inspiration? If you think about people like Steve Irwin, you know, his dad was taking him out into the, into the environment, into nature from a young age. That, you know, that sparked his, his enthusiasm, his passion. David Attenborough, who I'm a huge fan of, you know, from a young age, he was heading out in you know, all parts of the world, you know, tracking down animals and, yeah, bringing them back to the zoo in London. And while we think that's probably not a good thing to do now, but that built his empathy for the animals and his love of the animals mm. came from actually interacting with them and bringing them back to the zoo in London. We still think people need to connect and have that, uh, connection to nature to do positive things and to, to make a change. We can look at our first people, the Indigenous people, and how they were so connected and you know really had their finger on the pulse with nature, uh, whereas we've really completely lost it. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think there's a lot to be learnt from from our Indigenous uh, people in regards to looking after our environment and only taking what we need and then yeah looking after it. Here's the spot there'd normally be a community corner. The section of the show we make available for community announcements about upcoming events, group updates, news, and general happenings. Instead of that this week, we have an ad. An ad for a podcast app, which is convenient as you're mostly all listening to us on a podcast app. For those of you on Apple Podcasts, the built-in option on your iPhone, that's a podcast app too, and there's more options out there. This app is called PodCoin, and in the last two weeks since Climactic became available there, there's been nearly 50 hours of this show listened to. In that time, the people listening earned PodCoin, which is how the app rewards you for your time. Yeah, this app pays you for listening to podcasts. You can redeem the time you spend listening to shows like Climactic for cash at places like Amazon, or you can do like I've done and donate it to charities while rescuing animals fighting cancer, or removing CO2 from the atmosphere. By doing this ad read, we're extending the length of time we're a bonus show on PodCoin, meaning listening to us earns you more rewards than the normal rate. And that's all we're getting for this ad. No money, no products. Just a way of getting a higher rate for our listeners on PodCoin. I'm a fan, and I've been using the app every day for the last two weeks. Get it now and give it a try from Google Play or the Apple App Store. That's PodCoin, P-O-D-C-O-I-N. A lot within the climate community, I see kind of things is unfortunately quite siloed. Yeah. And people might not realize that like, oh, we've got, we're doing a door knocking campaign coming up next week. Maybe we should arrange to go out to reptile encounters sometime this yeah. week with our 20 volunteers. Because this is really going to get them psyched up. Obviously, if you're stuck in the climate change headspace, it's pretty easy to probably get yourself pretty down and negative. Mm-hmm. And probably the one nice thing about the animal side of things is it probably balances that out from an emotional perspective. It would help to fill these people up with um, a bit of passion and uh, motivation for, for what they're actually doing fighting climate change. Yeah, it really would, I think. One of the, the common topics we that comes up a lot on the show we talk to a lot of people about is that, that mental care, that self-care, 
you know, if you're involved with activism, making it personally sustainable as well. And like already, like you know, I've been been in your facility for like an hour, and my my spirits feel higher, my heart feels fuller. Like I've got to, you know, pet an amazing Australian native marsupial like that I'd never even known existed before today, and it's just like, yeah, it makes you feel good not only about the present that these things exist, but it makes you feel not only normally for me like you know desperate to try to save the future. Now I feel like challenged to and called to and like privileged to be able to fight for that because you look in the eyes of a reptile and you're like wow we are just a speck of geological time that little mm. neanderthal homo sapien now human being us have been around this this species has been looking out through that eye for millennia <laughs> just it's humbling i think that's a good thing uh. sorry to put so much on the animal side but like we kind of talk about the animal side, I think, in isolation from a lot of things sometimes, but its effect on the human spirit can be really profound. Oh, absolutely. And for me, one of my favorite animals is probably the saltwater crocodile. And still today, they're persecuted up in Queensland. And it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, this animal has been around for over 200 million years. It's an apex predator. It's amazing. It can grow up to seven meters. It can weigh over a ton. Like what is not to love that's awesome and i understand yeah they are dangerous but in reality they kill maybe half a dozen people a year so um, those are people who probably weren't where they should have been yeah probably hung their tail over the sign that says don't go swimming so half a dozen is not a lot in the scheme of things um there's a lot more things that are going to kill us than than a crocodile or a shark or or a snake Mm -hmm. okay so staggers me that people don't respect you know these animals that might be living in your backyard you know to me that's awesome I, i'd love to have crocodiles uh, living in my backyard a bit tricky down in melbourne but if i lived up in queensland that would probably be the case <laughs> make life more interesting for your dog but i'm sure like the dogs also can be smart enough to figure it out don't go near that thing uh, i've got a, a stuffy she's not that smart but <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> We do have some amazing animals and we just, yeah, need to, need to show them respect and get this message across to long, young people that we need to live in harmony with nature and the environment. It's actually critical. And if you take down, say, the saltwater crocodile, it's an apex predator, has a significant cascading effect on the rest of the ecosystem. And I love there's a story about wolves in Yellowstone National Park. So the wolves' numbers were eradicated and then they reintroduced these wolves back into Yellowstone National Park and the actual direction of the rivers changed or the course of the rivers changed uh, because of these wolves. Now it sounds strange but because they introduced the wolves the grazing animals now no longer graze where they used to graze because they'd be at risk of being eaten by a wolf. So uh, that allowed the vegetation to regrow which enabled the banks of the rivers to, to firm up which actually changed their course. With the first mammal extinction not too long ago directly linked to climate change and rising sea levels in this case and with that first mammal extinction being in Australia how hard did that hit in the animal community? And how hard did that sort of hit you personally? Personally, for me, I was worried, and I, I use it as like a, you know, guys, this, this you know, you can't deny this is serious anymore. Yeah. But I, I've honestly, I've forgotten the name of the species. It was a small rodent. And the extinction of something, that, that animal is now gone forever. 
it didn't hit me nearly as hard as I thought it would, which makes me worry that I'm just more disconnected than I realized I am. Because as soon as I actually say the words out and think about an extinction, yeah, that is profoundly disturbing. I think, though, it's easy to disconnect from that because had you ever seen one of those rodents before? No. Did you know what it looked like? No. Before it was extinct, did you know what it was? Never heard of it. Exactly. So it's easy to go, all right, well, you know, it's not going to change my life at all. For me, um, what's probably been scarier is what's happened in the Darling River and these fish that are over 100 years of age dying and, you know, what impact that's had on the whole ecosystem in that particular region. That, for me, is super scary because that's potentially, you know, one of our biggest ecological disasters and it makes the news for a morning and that then it's basically done. That really worries me a lot. With what we do, we can get out there and we can talk to students and talk to teachers and talk to people about it and, and raise awareness uh, for these things. It just takes people to get fed up uh, with this inaction uh, for change to happen. And mm. I think you know, more farmers are starting to talk up about the environment, which is a, a good thing. Yeah, but when, when those big moments happen, that are, that are good moments for reflection and kind of should act as a wake-up call, it is, a, it is a worry when they don't. Mm. I know we were outside in your kind of aviary section, and you'd mentioned you've got some flying foxes. They're not here at this site. They're, they're out at a farm. Over this summer, yeah, the, the record-breaking 2018 Australian summer, you had the, the spectacled flying fox population near, near Cairns. A quarter of the species in that area died within two days because the temperature just didn't get low enough overnight. There's a lack of available water and flying foxes are falling out of trees. I did see photos of that that did really profoundly disturb me. And just then hearing you've, you know, it may, it may not be the same particular species, but you've got some flying foxes that you can show students. I was like, yeah, that's, that's good. We Basically. have grey-headed flying fox and, you know, I've been to the Daintree River and done a night cruise along the Daintree and seen the spectacle of flying fox uh, flying in at night time to find their roosting spots. And that to me was awesome. Absolutely loved, you know, seeing that. And too many people, I guess, their view of flying foxes is they're smelly and they're, you know, carry diseases and da-da-da. Um, so they're persecuted. So therefore, when a quarter of the population dies, who cares? So this is where, you know, getting students at a young age, building empathy, building an understanding that, no, we need flying fox because they're pollinators and without them, mm -hmm. you know, we potentially lose food source for ourselves and, you know, it has a big impact on the whole ecosystem. So if we can join those dots, uh, unfortunately for flying fox and climate change, they're very susceptible to temperature rises. So they are at a higher risk of extinction. You know, one climate event could wipe out the whole population, which would be uh, pretty terrible. They're probably a good indicator kind of species. We know with climate, if it's too hot, the bats are going to yeah, fall out the, the sky. The species isn't very healthy at the moment. So, yeah, what is that indicating about the climate? Yeah. It's... Um, that is a space that I, I, I tend to go to, like personally for myself, I, I think of, you know, I, I imagine that worst case scenario and it motivates me to do more in the present, but yes, say that is the case that the flying fox population is wiped out. You, you kind of classify yourself at Reptile Encounters here, or, or I would, and I'm, see if I'm right or not, as, as a private zoo, you've got yep. facilities here and you've, you've 
but you have the potential to to breed captive pairs as well. Are we going to get to this like you know if you put on your worst case scenario hat like are some of these species that you know the the environment the home environment the native climate is all gone like is actually seeing some of these species going to become this kind of luxury good whether it's in public zoos when thank God they exist but also in kind of private zoos like for the people who care. <laughs> Like, oh, this is that, that flying fox that used to live up in northern Queensland and along the, the northern coast of Australia. But, well, it was, you know, it's been 20 years now since the last one died. It's, you know, climate just doesn't suit them anymore. They weren't able to, to migrate south because none of the habitat was right for them south, even though the temperature was. It's not just about being able to move. Yeah. It's like the, the land is not changing as quick as the climate is. And species can't adapt as quick, like... Can you can you kind of imagine that that worst case scenario, and then can you also see yourself as like, oh man, I've got the last two or the last handful, or God forbid, the last one of a species. Like, is that possible in in your lifetime? Oh, definitely. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that was the answer I was scared of getting, but yeah, it's like it's really no, no. it's, it's well, this lifetime. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of statistics that are thrown around, but you know. One of the most scary is that you know two thirds of all wild animals will be gone by 2020, which is now next year. Yeah. Um, so Just before we, we were handling uh, a small, is uh, it marsupial? Yeah, the brush-tailed betong. Yep. And there's how many of those? Five thousand. Roughly. I've so, touched one now, and I'll remember that for the rest of my life. Yeah. So it's just, what won't take much for that particular species to become extinct. You know, one virus or one parasite could easily knock over the rest of the wild population mm-hmm. and then you're down to the remaining animals in captivity. So, yeah, definitely that's something that's scary and uh, highly probable. Um, so if we look at population growth and the global population is, you know, what, 7 billion now? and 7.7. Heading towards 10. Yep. Um, you know, that growth obviously comes at a cost and that's uh, habitat for, for animals. We've got to start getting some of it back somehow. So whether it's from agriculture or, or whatever and look at more vertical housing systems and more sustainable ways of living, vertical farming, all, all these sorts of things I think uh, have to become a real thing sooner rather than later because you know, even in Melbourne we're feeling the pressure of population and you know, our freeways are gridlocked and mm-hmm. all these sorts of things. Like, it, it's happening now. And the only good thing about that is that hopefully drives a bit of action. Yeah, I definitely think it could happen and I don't want it to happen. But, yeah, as a bit of a realist, um, yeah, the situation with wildlife's not getting any better mm. uh, anytime soon. Well, I think you can be very happy with, with where you are and what role you're playing in the community and in society that like educating young people is probably the most important thing we can do. We've, we've seen, hopefully we see a change in this election cycle, but we've seen countless before that once society's kind of set, it's really hard to change. But yeah, the, we talked about the impact that seeing and interacting and actually being able to empathize with animals and the habitats they represent are hugely important. So I yeah, thank you for doing what you're doing and educating kids and and fixing that that education gap we've really got between the people who us who live on the land and the land yeah. itself. We don't know anything close to what we should know about it and how the ecosystems work. 
you feel like you're doing the the best thing you could be doing at the moment in this very kind of interesting time you know like it's, we're in a six mass extinction and you're working in the animal field like does that feel like the right place to be well for me it's definitely it's what i'm most passionate about um and for me it's how can i scale my impact so that you know we're not just impacting a classroom of 25 students how do i make that bigger so that's that's the challenge for us as a business um and for me personally that's what i'm motivated to, mm. to solve you know you look at someone you know an idol of mine david attenborough and you look at planet earth and go all right well he's impacting a billion people mm-hmm. well that's that's what i want to be able to do um obviously not tomorrow but hopefully down the track we can uh, develop out our programs that mm-hmm. will have have a bigger impact and yeah obviously that's beneficial for the environment the more faces we're in front of and the more kids that we engage and get interested in nature and the environment and motivate to make positive choices uh, is all a good thing i've already had you know some ideas i've thrown out here about how the rest of the climate community can really leverage you as an asset and break down a bit of this barrier between oh i'm I'm a human doing human things in the human system and the animals are over there and the people who care about the animals are over there, but actually bridging that gap. And I, I hope, you know, people who are listening to this also kind of think, oh, I might have an idea of how we can scale up that impact and that reach. And, you know, here's an idea for a program. And also just that simple act of coming here and seeing these animals and, and getting to hear you just tell tell you what it is and what the impact is. It's just... It's, it's been, a, honestly, a transformative experience for me today coming here, and I hope other people take up that opportunity as well to come. So, yeah. Josh, will probably kind of wrap it up at that point, but do you have any kind of final thoughts there? Or? No, thanks for, thanks for coming in. It's been a, a pleasure to meet you, and, um, yeah, I'm humbled that you know, you've had that experience today, and, yeah, we're open to, to speaking to people that, you know, have similar motivation and passions, and, yeah, definitely happy to work with uh, like-minded Uh, businesses and individuals so yeah thank you very much so as always on the the website of climactic for this episode there will be a guest page for josh and you'll have his uh his website of course for reptile encounters and a hopefully an email address as well so yeah you can contact josh really easily and reach out and i know i'm thinking of a couple people right now i'll be getting josh in contact with and Let's really, yeah, try to, to ramp up the, the impact of what he's doing has because it's, it's fantastic and everyone should be having this experience. Thank you very much for your time, Josh. Thank you, Mark. Cheers. And thank you so much for listening, folks. It was a real pleasure to bring you this chat with Josh Cox of Reptile Encounters. I'd highly recommend checking them out and getting in touch. The sixth mass extinction has well and truly begun. And I hope to check in more with animal lovers like Josh because it's breaking their hearts. And it personally refills my tank to continue in the fight for the future. Have a great day. Keep up the good work and take care of each other. See you next week for another episode. This has been a production of Climactic, a podcast collective helping local communities tell their extraordinary stories. It's our mission to help elevate the voices of the everyday heroes we're surrounded by and inspire, sustain, 
and motivate the climate community. We love working with local environmental groups, individuals, nonprofits, and social enterprises. So if you've got a story to tell, please just get in touch. The Climactic Collective is Mark Spencer, Rich Bowden, Maxine Baisley, Georgia Scheel, and Bronwyn Gresham. Our producer is Hazel Fidikara. Our digital design is by Rose Fidikara. Our climactic theme is produced by Greg Grassi, and our logo designed by Abigail Hawkins. We're also pleased to feature the music of the General Assembly. Thank you for listening to Climactic, the podcast for our climactic times. Collective. Collective.